everybody. My name is Eric Johnson. I'm here with my brother, Derek. Uh, the Joe Bros today are running into the fog with Mr. Joseph Goldberg. Joe, as we like to call him, and he likes to call himself. Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, gentlemen. How are you doing this fine morning in April? Wonderful. And Derek, how are you today? Really good. Really excited to be with you both. Wish you could be in person, but uh, we'll take this podcast uh, Zoom environment over nothing. Now, before we jump into things, Derek, you got to remind me, what kind of view are we supposed to be recording this in? Is this gallery? Gallery, gallery view. Yep. All right, we're in gallery, and I just remembered to rename myself uh, from <laughs> my original identity that I came into this meeting with to the appropriate one that I'm here with you today. That uh, just exposes I, a little bit of the fog that Joe Bros are still working out, Joe. Yeah, I saw that. I thought he's under alias. It's cool. <laughs> I got so many aliases, man, I forget who I actually am sometimes. Um, but... People call you a lot of things, too, but we won't get into that. <laughs> Mostly behind my back. All behind uh, your back. Ask me someday about Srikanto Muthuchidambaram. Uh, that goes way back. Actually, way back to before we met, Joe, uh, which, Possible? by my recollection, uh, was the summer of 1998. Uh, and I was driving out west uh, with my wife. I was childless at that point, uh, but my wife and I decided to take a road trip and we tripped out to the west coast and then eventually ended up in San Francisco at a uh, conference where you were speaking. Oh, um, and conference. it would have been about June, mid-June of 1998. You were there uh, in your duties at Motorola, uh, as I recall, and mm -hmm. we met after you gave a talk and then that dude from Ericsson, I think his name was Bobby, um, yeah. was also speaking. And it was kind of like this little, you know, interesting rivalry between two titans of the communications world at the time and their top competitive intelligence executives uh, from Ericsson and Motorola. And I, I was here kind of new. I'd kind of fallen off the turnip truck a couple of years before that and was just sort of figuring my way around the competitive intelligence world. And I was a little bit starstruck. So that's how we met, Joe, and whether you remember that or not, probably is based on how many drinks we had that night. Yeah, uh, I would have put us earlier, but I do remember the San Francisco, me at the San Francisco conference. I remember that Bobby and the, we, we uh, ended up on the uh, speaking circuit together randomly for a while. It was actually became sort of this, not, not contentious, but sort of this Mutt and Jeff kind of give and take thing because we you know, became friends in a sense. I forgot all about that. Thanks for thanks for reminding me just how gray I've gotten in the past <laughs> few years. Well, it's only twenty what twenty three years ago. So um, I would have put it. I would have put it sooner. I think. I think. When did you guys start? Can I ask that question? Ninety five. Uh, Derek. Derek showed up. Yeah. It was Derek helped me build the wall in the beauty salon uh, the first week of February in nineteen ninety five. Okay, well, I'll believe you. You remember Baron I, but I knew it was in the nineties. I thought it might be just a little bit earlier, but. The San Francisco con that was a heck of a conference, by the way. That was what happened there. Yeah. Hotel Nico, as I recall. Um, yeah, you you remember. Right? I didn't I didn't show up on the scene officially until 2003, but it, as Eric said, I was there helping him build that wall way yeah. back in uh, the winter of '95, as we yeah, said. You were you were pioneers, gentlemen. You were pioneers. Well, Joe, it's been such a pleasure to look forward to this conversation. And uh, when this thing goes live, uh, Derek, you want to reveal the date to date today because you've got a whole bunch of date dependencies that I didn't yeah, know about. You bet I do. I got all these little dates moving around. Joe, so it's uh, April the 5th of 2021. Uh, we're going to release this podcast on the 25th of May. And the next day is what? What's, what's that next day? What, next day is Pub Day. Pub Day, the 26th. So this book, which I don't believe you'll be able to buy an edition that says not for resale, right? Yeah, not, um, not yet. This this book, okay. your second book, your second book will be coming out on the 26th of May. As I, as I have the right, right date there. Yeah. So uh, you know, we're trying to champion your cause and help you spread the message about this, about this book. What, I guess my first question would be, uh, you wrote this other book. Secret Wars, and I understand that one's going to get a little bit of a facelift, if not a content lift as well. But what led you to write this one? Oh, the story. Uh, when after I wrote Secret Wars, I was going to write. The, I was writing the sequel. Right, it's a historical fiction book, so it's set in '86, and uh, I had more stories to tell after that. And I was just a good way into it, and had lunch or uh, breakfast with a writer friend of mine, Kevin Maurer. He wrote No Easy Day. 
one of the first oh, yeah. book on the sat and just one another great book on on uh Cricador and uh Philippines very good book and I have to read it yet but I know it's a good book I've read enough reviews about it. it's a good book and uh he said don't write a historical fiction book agents don't want it they want current action bang bang action thriller so I'm like okay so I put a break on sequel and started try to figure out what stories I wanted to tell and the only thing I really knew at that point was competitive intelligence right besides my my background so the original book which was not called the spy devils at the time um was about corporate intelligence and i wrote a whole and i wrote many hundreds of thousands of words trying to get to the story i wanted to tell and by the way this is you guys were in that book no kidding and you may show up in sd in spy devils too which is called rebellious son but uh i had to i had to cut i cut basically a whole book out of my book and you wow. guys didn't make it but I think I can bring it back in book two. Nice. Um, I, I that would be awesome. Yeah, I had to start. Now, you're not going to be from Wisconsin. That was too obvious. I had you in West Virginia or some crazy place like that. But <laughs> small um, world. Yep. You're closer to Washington, D.C. Uh, so I um, uh, got done with my corporate intelligence book with this hero from a major tech company in the Midwest. And you know what I found out when I was pretty much done? Corporate intelligence as a thriller book is boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really boring. So there's, there's you know, as much as you try to bang, bang it up you, you, or some action, ooh, I got a paper cut or whatever. Uh, it's not quite as thrilling. There's not quite, quite as much bloodletting. So I shopped, I, I talked to several of my writer friends and uh, uh, great uh, input from Ryan Steck at The Real Book Spy. He runs the biggest of the thriller book review sites and a really oh, yeah. good editor and friend. And we started chopping, I went through some other editors and chopped and merged together my corporate life and went back and pulled some stories from the previous life at the agency and the spy devils were born. Um, wow. And so I, and that, that's kind of, uh, and I'm kind of glad they came alive. I mean, the main characters, they are who they are. The story is based upon reality, um, real things. So I want to have some truth to it. I don't want it to be, I don't want to write stuff, didn't want to write stuff that was not truthful, which is why the corporate intelligence stuff was boring, right? Because what do we do? We collect intelligence, we write it up for people, we do some analysis and woo, um, look, I have a great PowerPoint presentation here. So I needed something based upon what I did at Motorola, which there was some interesting things and turned into Spy Devils. Yes, is it based on, it's based on Motorola, yeah. Is it based on my agency days? Yeah. I try to slam them together. Who's the main character? What's the main character's name? What's what's the their main name? Oh, for you guys, the main character, and for those, those Iowans who may be watching, every major character and most of the major characters and uh, other places are University of Iowa buildings or streets. No kidding. Um, uh, so okay. Bridger is short for Trowbridge Hall, which is a building, and there's Stanley Hall and Mayflower Hall, and they're all... They're in Courier, and they're all, and all the major corporate people are Iowa buildings, just for like Easter eggs for the Iowa people. My wife's reading right now, and she goes, "Oh, there's another one," um, and she's not a thriller reader. But the major, the main character, real or not, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. Um, came out of is is somebody who is a fictional character understands that. It's all kind of a game, kind of a kind of a don't take it too seriously when it's really serious because it's like in the intelligence world and even in corporate, it can burn you out, right? And you gotta have you have turnaround times and you've got anxieties if you're getting the right answer. Uh, now on this fictional book level, it's a different level, of course. It's it's there's a little bit more personal danger involved because it has to be because it's a fictionalized book. But I wanted him to be. It's how I looked at him was Red Reddington meets John, John Wick and they have a kid. That's sort of my, how I want him to be. An action guy who doesn't want to use action, does not want to kill. Rule number one of the book, no killing. He ends up having to do it because that's just- Unfortunately, yeah. So it's yeah, of course. It's, uh, that's how you sell things. More, more sticks and eyes. Um, and, I, and, and I didn't intend that to happen. I, I, the rule I wrote for that book, for, that, for the Spy Devils, no killing was I didn't want to write a killer, killer book. It just wasn't my thing, but that's 
the market sort of demands that. And I actually think the market is, is coming off of that right now. Mm. And, and COVID and everything else sort of put a break on it. But you know, so that's where the main character came from. Sort of this scallywag uh, guy. Um, I don't want to mischaracterize the, the, the Bridger um, who uh, was raised to be what he has to do by, by literally a mother who raised him to do what he has to do. So he has no choices in life. He's being directed. He has no free will almost. He's born to do this. And no matter how, whatever, you know, as many times he wants to go someplace else, environment, world, actions, events, put him back on that track that he was set on, which I think a lot of us have feel in our own lives, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be Michelangelo, but I also got to put food on the table. So I got to go out to my nine to five, no matter what I want to do. I got, and he's got it. He just happens to be born to be a, not a spy, but it's, we call him, make it easy, but he's a leader of this group of people who um, solve problems. Yeah. That's a good way to describe the intelligence business, by the way, is problem solvers. Uh, some problems are more uh, life and death than others. Yeah. Well, I mean, when we're back in the Motorola days, and you guys are doing that, I'm sure you're in it. These are big, big game decisions. And if you're a small company who's just got your supply chain whacked or whatever by a by a pandemic that you sort of kind of planned for, or maybe not, you're trying to survive, right? You're you're yeah. you are. It's a big big issue. I was on a Motorola pandemic SARS team back in the day. And we're like, you know, let's, let's track this. And it kind of came and went, it, it flew away. Um, but it was bird flu. That was kind of a, right. a joke there. You must be uh, a writer. I'm good if my spy devil's pen. Uh, but, you know, and I want to, yes, there you go. There's some swag. I might have a few more coming out, but I want, I want, I really, for those of us who've been there, not for ACA, CIA, fine. But those of us who sat in the corporate chair or the small business chair, that's what I wrote the first book for. Yeah. It was, I, I had my motto, I had it on my little wall here. I wanted you to see you, you, you in these characters. Right. You know, I have a section that survived my cuts about the, it's, if, you, if you have the book in front of you, it's called uh, Old Timers versus New Guys, New Kids. And it was what was happening while I was at Motorola, where the new people were coming in and beating up on the historical old guys. The old guys were going, hell, no way. And there was this tension inside the company by the new leadership. And so there's a whole thing about stodgy old companies, which, yes, yes, it's based on Motorola and the corporate stuff. That's, that's what I know. No secret there. Now, those aren't real people. I, I, I don't want to get, you know, they're, they're conglomerates of lots of people I met over time. But if you're in a small company, you got the same I want you to say, yeah, I'm tired of seeing that cubicle. Yeah, my chair was given me by HR and I like my old chair. But tell me I've got to use this chair. I had a whole thing on that. My office is messy. I got, and I just want people to identify. Now, I had to cut a lot of that for author purposes. At least I felt good that the first version was this homage to the corporate intelligence, business intelligence strategy thing. That was the original goal. Uh, I remember you telling a story. We were landing somewhere and we, I think we're both coming out of O'Hare and uh, we were riding the shuttle to the same hotel for the same conference. And I said, what have you been up to lately, Joe? And you said, well, uh, unfortunately, Motorola accidentally went into business with the Turkish mafia and I've been trying to get a few billion dollars back from them. Uh, And I thought, wow, that sounds like an interesting day. Yeah. Shame on me. Um, uh, I think it's, I think, I think the statute of limitations have, has worn off. They still got my file. That is the basis, the gem of uh, where spy devils came about the most unique thing I did there. It's not, it's not Motorola, but it's based upon that event. And almost as, as I say early on, truth is stranger than fiction. So and that actually was sort of a, a model throughout the entire book. So what do you do when you have these bad characters not acting in good faith with people who are sort of acting in good faith. And you put, you put truth in the fictional advice format. But yes, that was sort of where I had to, took the corporate idea and try to slam the uh, intelligence community idea. With so, it. so is the cover art, is this Kiev? Like the I think it is, is yeah. Okay. I, I hired a uh, cover making firm to do it and I had to give them pages and pages of background on the book. It actually was very useful. And I've used it for 
my my uh, audiobook narrator that's in, that's in production right now, and uh, it made me think: what's the character's internal motivation? What's the character? I had to write it all out again. I'm like, wow, this is cool. And they took that and they gave me a couple cover versions, and I think that's Kiev. I think they actually found a picture, um, which where I spent a lot of time in Kiev, Kiev, sorry, in my um, corporate in my um, political campaigning days. Mm. After Motorola, I did political campaigns internationally, and I was in, in Ukraine for a long time. And so I write about someplace you know. And so that's why I picked, picked that. I didn't want to use the Turks, because who cares? So I made him, made him Ukrainian. Very yeah, cool. Is. Joe, you, uh, you started out uh, before the recording started. You or Maybe you even mentioned it here, uh, that, you, that you left uh, thousands or at least hundreds of pages on the cutting room floor. Kind of yeah. ran through that. I'm going to use the, our, the the slogan of our podcast. You ran through that fog of writing, mm-hmm. pitching it, and throwing it to the curb, at least for now. Um, but that was kind of hard to to say. Oh, I've invested literally hundreds of hours into this process, mm-hmm. and I'm leaving this over here in exchange. I'm going this direction. Can you talk through what what that was really like? For because I imagine there's people going to listen to this podcast and say, Hey, maybe I've got a story to tell. Uh, how story. do I how do I go about that? And how do I not get pissed at myself when I have to ditch hundreds of pages of the story that I first thought I wanted to tell and actually go a different direction? Well, that's a that is a that's a heck of a question. It's almost a, a podcast just unto itself. Um, I'll start backwards. When I was towards the end, I had I sent it to another editor who is a big name editor. He was recommended me by best selling fiction uh, action thriller authors. Everybody sort of knows him. He's like a moneymaker editor. Really great guy, John Payne. John Payne. And John did a great job telling me what was remarkable or not. But one thing he did do, from my point of view, from my heart was rip out the soul, right? The things I thought really made the characters, made the, all that early stuff live, he, in a very professionally, clinically way, you know, book has to move, book has to move, this can't. And he was right in the sense of, the storyline, but for that that part that I was trying to cling to from the very beginning, years ago, um, he suggested taking. I I kept stuff in. That's my it's my right to do that, and rewrote it to make it better. But I I had this sort of things I really loved. I called them they were they were they were sacrosanct. There were things you got to keep this. You got to keep this. This I wrote from my heart. This is, this is everybody identifies with themselves. This is the story I want to tell. This is for my old gang and all you guys. That's why you guys were in the book originally. So I, you, and, um, and I wanted the sound to, effects are incredible, by the I way. Mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a theater. I was a theater guy. It's one of those degrees is theater arts. Um, and I just wanted to not lose that story. I didn't want, I wanted to be more John Le Carre and Frederick Forsyth, guys who told stories. Yeah. As opposed to people who who said nuke bomb bioweapon, you know, save the day. Yeah. John Le Carre couldn't get published today, or he'd have a very difficult time getting the greatest thriller writer of all times, spy espionage writer of all times, hmm. because he doesn't. Who dies in Tinker Taylor? One, two people. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so I, I wanted to be that, and because he had a story to tell, he was writing about his days back in the day, Graham Greene and Ian Fleming and the gang, and. I had you guys, I had my Motorola friends, I had my agency friends, I had those these, char- these crazy characters who may or may not pop up in this thing. Um, and I, I, they're, they're in a file. There is, a, there is about 150, 160 page file of all the cuts that I wanted to keep. And I'm gonna, now I hopefully got people a little bit, hopefully we'll get them a little bit tasty on the first one. The second one and the third one, if there's any more after that, I can put that soul back in, yeah. give, give that, tell that story some more. But if you got that story, listen, writing is no fun. It's like a job. And you gotta, this is writing time. Um, but you, know, you got to sit down and do it. Because if, as my dad would say, anything you get done by staring at it. Right? And there's classes you can take. The master class, the, the, all the, a lot of great writers are on master class. Of, or even uh, pop, or uh, I'll say I won't say great. I'll say best-selling authors are there, and 
you can learn a lot just from hearing. Now, I'm not, I'm not a, a craftsman. I'm not a, of the trade. I just sort of go. We all have different styles. And I've learned it a little bit. And now I've talked to enough people. But my, my recommendation is, if you have something to say, say it. Whether you're interested in it, whether you think other people are interested or not, that's irrelevant. Put that away. Put that fog of self-doubt in a box and put that away because people are going to hate it. Yep. You, can't, you can't write for crap. Your story is boring. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. I wanted to write at least the original drafts for the corporate intelligence community. Mm. And there's still some of that, and there'll be a little bit more. And I re, that's, that was my mission. And I completed that. It may not be necessarily what I have left, but I, I felt like I, I mean, if you want to go read a really bad draft of a book, I can send you the original. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't even remember what I called it. But I, I, I wasn't Spy Devils. It was, it was um, I, I don't remember. It's been so long. I have to go back in my files to see, see what the name I had. It may have been Truth versus Fiction or something. I don't remember. But Spy Devils, Spy Devils actually came out of uh, the Devil's Brigade from a famous William Holden movie. Remember the devil? A true brigade of military people were made of these uh, crazy nuts Canadians and Americans who the Germans feared. That was where I came up with the Spy Devils. I thought that was a weird and interesting title. That but it sounds, it sounds though to me like you've, you're trying to walk the line between being formulaically successful with building a new franchise Mm -hmm. And also being authentic in terms of the story that you're telling. And I see that in the Bridger character. Now, I haven't started reading the book yet, but I see from the outside sort of looking into the product, mm -hmm. you've got a character that you're going to establish that we have to care about. We, yep. have to, we have to care about Bridger or there won't be a second book or a third book or any of that stuff. And you have to establish this identity of the spy devils organization and the types of stuff they do mm -hmm. and then you know one of the comments you shared your uh, unboxing a few days ago on facebook and, and yeah. it was fun to watch and i commented back that you're going to be the next jack Carr. and the thing that a jack Carr does that i am looking forward to discovering with the spy devils when i read it is he's all about the equipment you know what gear and very specific, like you can visualize as a dude. Anyway, you can right. visualize, you know, what that's got to have your tomahawk. What a tomahawk, exactly. I've got this very specific piece of equipment, and that equipment is uh, for a unique type of problem solving. So, talk to us about the being formulaic on one side, and at the same time, in order to be successful, and at the same time, being authentic. And is there a little signature like Jack Carr's equipment, you know, granularity that you've tried to build into this franchise? Yeah, well, that's actually an interesting story because that's that's the action thriller side. And I was trying to avoid the action thriller side. You know, Jack Carr, who I've not yet met or talked to, or we have mutual friends. Um, I'll hopefully, we'll connect with him soon. Is you know, he he came out of a out of a special forces sniper world, and. Josh Hood, who does now Treadstones, and Simon surveys with special uh, Secret Service and the like. I mean, these guys have stories. They have pictures. They got guns. They're in the desert. You know, they have the shared brotherhood of beards and dark sunglasses that people who are counting the money in their accounting box and making sure that PowerPoint colors all match um, don't quite have. So it's it is. I'm not going to say easier because what Jack Carr does is not easy and. Uh, a lot of the others uh, are, who are not easy. I mean, Jack Carr struck for a reason um, and uh, quite deserves the so guy's brilliant and really nice. But I, so I said, what, what's my hook exactly? What's my brand? And I, and I actually came up with the phrase greetings from the, from the devil. Mm. And as a, it's become my, my tagline now. In fact, I'm changing my, I sent you guys business cards with the, with the picture yeah. and thing. Um, I'm now redesigning, I spot too many of those. I'm redesigning them on the back. I'm adding greetings from the devil on the yeah. back of those. Yeah. Um, because I, because this has my, my uh, web address in the back. I'm adding greetings from the devil because that's sort of become my, the phrase of this guy. That was what was fear. That was, that's what made him, made them invisible 
terrifying, mysterious, dangerous, and also because they use social media as their weapon, not not tomahawks yeah. or high-powered rifles or all those other things I don't descri- I don't describe. Uh, they're very popular. They're a covert team that nobody knows who they are, but they're extremely popular on social media because that's the weapon they use. They kill with viral. Well, their main weapon is to, it's like Spanish Inquisition, their main weapon is to attack with the social media uh, and expose people to want the, the light shined on them. Yeah. Since I teach social media at college, I thought that might be, might be a useful tool. It's a different tool. I don't think anybody else sort of uses social media as kind of that. They use it as a backstory, but that's their main weapon. Yes, they get tossed into things where they got to do action adventure thing. So that was my, the social media thing was my original brand issue. And through the cuts that became less important and the uh, mysteriousness of the Bridger character and the spy doubles, the fact that they're popular, but no one knows who they are, um, sort of became the back the backdrop to it. And greetings from the devil became the motto and the brand for that. That's my brand now. I'm using that as my main, my main have you Have you uh, secured greetings from the devil.com? I have not done greetings from devil.com. That's a good idea. In fact, I just Better get on it. I just was talking notes. Hang on. You got seven weeks until I got all I got all these uh, uh, computer programs to help write, and I always go back to the notebook and keep it can in handy. So let me write that down. You know, I find this really ironic. You know that the the corporate intelligence world and two things about that when when that group at Motorola was getting sort of broken apart, and your job and your job got eliminated. The, the story I remember was you went to the people in your team and it was a, it was a sizable team for a, for a corporate program, right? Getting smaller. We were, we were, we were pretty lean and mean by the end, but yeah. You, you went to them and didn't you say, do I have this right? Didn't you say, you know, it'd be a good idea for you to go like into a business unit or get into a product yeah. sort of uh, situation. Many of your people took you up on that. Yeah, right? I tried to, I tried to, at least I hope I got across the message that I wanted them to, uh, come out with jobs. People had new, new kids and several other kids and had been around for a long time. The ones who've been around for a long time survived that they kept um, because of their, of their skill. And the other ones, I was like, well, go, go seek, you know, go, go out into a business unit or something because this is going to disappear. And it disappeared for whatever number of reasons, including my own inability to get across our, our, our value at the end. But it's you know protect the people, and that's kind of what Bridger does in some sense is to protect his team. Uh, it sort of becomes a vengeance book halfway through when it changes gears. Um, actually, I never thought of it that way. It wasn't connected to the whacking of moat, but uh, when I think about it, maybe there's something there. And that's and, why I brought it up. I, I've yeah. only read the first two chapters, kind of a quick read. I'm not a reader, mm-hmm. so I, I took keen interest in you saying that it's coming out on you know a place like Audible or the audiobook is is in process. Can I ask you a question? What did you think of the of the forward from Bridger? Uh, I thought it was really good. You know, the um, talking to the readers, breaking the wall. Yeah, I, I get the sense, and I think he said it that uh, Bridger's mother was really, really important to him. Yeah, right. Mama's boy, sort of. Well, I'll tell you why that came out of. This was actually a theme from the original, uh, whatever Hammer the Never, the original Spy Devils, which didn't survive much. In fact, the last things I changed about 10 days ago before I put this latest version of the manuscript in to create this print copy was my, my, both my parents died in the, during the writing of original versions of this book. Mm. And I, I had all the way through references to father-son relationships. And uh, Bridger has a mother. His father died mysteriously when he was a young guy. Uh, he's got a memento from his father um, that he keeps with him. That's the stuff I added. When you get to that, you get to the, he likes to golf, all right? He golfed with his father's and he kept a, a ball marker his father gave him before he died, you know, and he keeps it with him. And so, and, and then at, sort of when you get to the Ukrainian characters, the daughter has a problem with her father. And there's, there's a couple other places where there's this family dynamic and I wanted you know, that was either some sort of subconscious idea or not was conscious idea to have this family relationship. Because when you're at Mo- when in our team, I felt was a family. 
All right. We're trying to take care of each other. We had problems. We had birthdays. We had family together. And so I, no matter what happened, I still felt we were all family. From any job I had all the way from the beginning, even, even the first ones, you know, you have, you develop that relationship. You guys are family. So that, that is, you know, that you, maybe you feel it more acute than others, but there was this conscious uh, family relationship topic that ends up with him versus his mother. Um, who raised him specifically to do this job. And her name was May and May, May Flower Hall. And, um, and I had a whole thing about her story, her background that got cut. I've kept it. I'm gonna keep pieces through. because I think it's really important that family topic I wanna get through. I started putting pieces back. I'm, I'm at the right length. I didn't wanna get too much longer. So I put back a few hundred words. So that, so that was, besides the, that's actually a good, very astute. I actually kind of forgot about this. The, besides the corporate, thing which is the family and the doing business and doing the job and making salary was this family relationship topic and the action adventure just was the mortar that kind of kept everything together that flips a little bit more because of marketability but um that was was writer themes right when you're outlining it and some of that stuff i had no clue later on it just came right just writing along where that come from uh nice. and, you keep running, you keep rolling. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm, no, I'm no professional writer, but you know, some, you know, there's two in the bank and you know, more to come. We'll see how people like them. So far, so good on the reviews. That's, that's kind of hard work. So, well, I'm not surprised Eric picked up on that because he's kind of a mama's boy. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I could tell stories upon stories of uh, our mom. And, you know, most of the time it would start with Eric or I uh, getting a little bit too, uh, shall we say, um, you know, uh, feeling a little too much freedom, uh, in what we might say to our dad and oh, our mom would, our mom would step in and, you know, a lot of the time it would end with, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. And it didn't matter how much taller we might've been than her. She was, she was going to get her point across. That's the mother of him. <laughs> oh, and that reminds me because of the brother thing. Um, Bridger is the main spy character. Peter Schaefer is the corporate character. Schaefer Hall. That's actually the political science building. So I picked Schaefer for the main character. And they're close in age. They're actually a bit older in age. They're not, they're not the 20s and the early 30s. They're actually in their later 30s. And Bridger turns 40 during the book. So they're not, it's not your standard young, husky, you know, bicep ripping guy. They're people who've lived lives. And there might be one line that survived. I have to go, I'm not exactly sure it's in this book anymore. If you give me the cuts, I have to go back and reread a whole in detail, which I will do when I do the audiobook. And I created this, I wanted this brother relationship. Bridger has no brothers. I got four older brothers. I got brothers. But I wanted that he had no family. He was a loner. Mm. And so here comes this guy from corporate, PU, corporate intelligence, fake spies. We all heard that stuff. And then this guy comes on, he kind of likes him. And, you know, he's, he could be my brother. If I had a brother, it could be him. And so I had that line. So those things are scattered throughout. And, wow. and I, said, I just wanted that sense of, of community because we are a sense of community, you know, late 90s. You're the, when I, when I uh, was thinking about getting out of Motorola at the time or, uh, and, or knew I was getting out, I called you guys. Yeah. You were the first call. I remember and that. How do, how do I become a consultant? What do I need to, I was looking for a job. I just wanted, I just wanted the, the ideas of what, what it is to be no longer in this big corporate or business cocoon who have my, they own my computer, they own my phone, they own my everything. And now I'm going to be on my own. How do I price myself? I asked you that, Eric. And yeah. you know, what is, what's the value here? Somebody who did this stuff on the outside is not, who's now putting up their own shingle. And that's, that's relationships. Yeah. And that is what the book was really, a, it still is about relationships. Well, and you got to kill to eat when you're on the, the dark side, uh, so to speak. And that's a, uh, you know, intentional metaphor uh, because there is, it is hunting. You're hunting for the next client and the next engagement and the next, you know, contract. And, you know, it's definitely different than, I won't say that the corporate world is insulated from the realities of market dynamics. In fact, in some ways, it's a lens that is brighter than ever, you know, at, when you accidentally go into business with the Turkish mafia, for example. Uh, but there is, uh, it is a different scale. I, I think that the corporate environment 
tends to be deeply impersonal and dispassionate about personal relationships, ironically. Uh, and so what you described, what you did at Motorola, and you probably did this at CIA before that, is you built familial relationships and acted like a big brother. Uh, and if I had to describe sort of my impression of Joe Goldberg at Motorola, it was, he's like the big brother. I think of some of the guys on your team, and I won't mention them by name, yeah, I talked with at the time, uh, but, um, you know, they thought of you as big brother Joe, you know, and that was a compliment. It's, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And well, it's, it's, it, there's a, uh, a war metaphor there. You know, you're fighting for the people in the foxhole, not for the big, you know, yeah. the, the, the thing. But there is in anything, you're, you're protecting your family, you're protecting your people. You spend more time with them. Um, the agency, I had a, it was like a divorce. Um, I had this really crazy idea that once you left, you're, you left. Um, you know, I, I, I actually, this is not a story I've told too often. I guess it's been a long time now, so I can. I, I had some success. You know, it's in the books and some of that stuff. And I had some flat of failures too. But um, nobody knew him. But I just, I'll, I'll do that parenthetical later. The, and I had a file. Like we all do here. Thank you, General. And this is my file. I kept it. All right. I have a. I, I, I kept my surviving. Uh, those are uh, exceptional performance awards. That's one of one of the other ones that kind of survived the fire. And I, I fired my house. And um, I gave it to a friend of mine, probably the only person I'm still in contact with. And I said, "Can you please read this? Because I'm going to the shredder." And I want, I want to know that somebody knows the stuff. So I can't really tell these stories. There's some I won't tell. Um, and so I was a nice guy, read it. I went to the shredder and shredded eight years mm. of stuff. That no one's going to know about. And I handed over my badge and my stuff. And I drove away and I, and I felt like I should be separating because that's what you should do. You know, I no longer should be connected. There's operational reasons. There's all these things that have to do with being in the intelligence community. Going, I, mean, I, I mean, I was stupid. All these other people went out, they kept their contacts, they were leveraging them, they were doing all these things. I never even considered that. Mm. Now, I, I did do that for Secret Wars, the first book, um, because I was, had to leverage and connect to get some stuff done. But my, it was eight years of a hole. And so I did some shredding. It was kind of interesting just for a story last night. I was actually researching stuff Book two of Spy Devils, Rebellious Son, actually goes back and pulls characters from Secret Wars, okay? Secret Wars was not meant to be a prequel, but I sort of had these stories set up, so I'm saying, okay, I can bring these. And, the, and basically the, the idea is, when you have an old spy and an old terrorist, what do they got left to do? What's left in their lives, all right? And they've been going after it. So I pulled the guys from Secret Wars. And I was doing some research last night, and... The idea for Secret Wars, the propaganda operation that it was, I read something that I did not even know was going to ever be written in Wikipedia. Huh. And like I said, I turned to my wife and said, another thing I was just talking about, this program, here it is. Not, not me and the agency, but this, is, this was the subject matter, the topic. This is why we did it. And, and I'm like, wow. Wow. I mean, talk, it's kind of serendipitous that I just talked about, I was just doing this stuff, and 20 minutes later, I go, Here's this thing that is drip related to the topic I'm trying to pull out from Secret Wars to create book two of Spy Devils. So I don't know if that made sense, but everything's connected. Another one of the mottos that's in the book, or, or at least how I wrote it. I use it for my classes all the time. Everything is connected, right? The stuff that you're doing was connected to people who did it before you. The stuff that the people who are going to follow you are going to learn from you, and they're connected to you. The intelligence techniques. The, I mean, you guys are some pioneers in data and futurism in, uh, in intelligence that other people didn't see coming. You built upon the people before you. People are going to build upon your work. And we must remember that nothing was just made for us. All right. This wasn't just written for us. This wasn't just created for us. And I do it for my social media, my writing classes. You know, the Internet wasn't made for you. TikTok wasn't just made for you. All right. It's connected to Gutenberg. All right. And here's how it's connected. And they go, oh, wow. If we don't have that open awareness to all these things around us, I, first of all, you can't be a storyteller. Right. This is what I want to be. And you can't sort of exist 
you get you get really uptight in the world that we exist in because you think it's all built for you. Why isn't it going right? Why isn't this working? This is mine. No, it's not. No, it's so not. I, go ahead, Eric. I just wanted to uh, make note that I think one of the reasons why you went to the shredder was because of your innate patriotism. And one of the things I look forward to every summer is the Independence Day yeah. missive from Joe Goldberg and the founding fathers and the, the I, I'll say the reminder that this is where we sprang from and it needs to be remembered or else we'll right. end up in very dangerous territory where we no longer have a representative democracy, republic, you know, however you want to describe this American experiment of a couple hundred and a half years or so. And I'm quite concerned about the political discord. And I think you correctly, by the way, with Bridger and the whole social media, the weaponization of social media and the, the, the multiplication of truth into different versions of reality, which we see get worse every election cycle. And I'll leave it at that. I will say that your patriotism, good sir, is what sent you to the shredder. Well, I appreciate that. And that, uh, I do think I have, maybe it's juvenile sense of doing the right thing. In fact, if you go back to Secret Wars, and you go back to my, my dedication, this was actually the theme of the book, which was to my family, and then and to the patriots, you know who you are. That, that book was written, and there's a whole scene in that book, which is straight out of reality, of where I stole that line about the Patriots, because we don't know who they are. Yeah. And you don't need to be in the cloistered world of intelligence to be a Patriot, and doing, you know, we're never gonna know their name. You are, you are a Patriot's a tough word. You are dedicated and loyal and whatever, in any fashion to what you do, as long as you're true to the things that you think are within you, all right? another theme of the book, you know, you got to understand um, what makes these people tick. All right. And we know what, and that means you need to know me. I need to know you guys. I wrote you as characters. All right. I don't know you that well, but I know, I know, I know the foundation of what makes you tick and family and you, know, you have a business and things like that. And so you need to know that. And if you don't know it yourself, this is, this is like, this is trite parent stuff and now grandparent stuff. But that's, I knew that. I think I know myself pretty well. And I, I don't know myself tomorrow because I've never been me tomorrow. But I know who I've been. And I was writing for the Patriots, for the people who were around us, who no one will ever know, who are doing this job that no one cares about. And, and you know what? They're there right now. A small they're all there right now doing exactly the same stuff. And they're not looking for any, any pats on the back. And your storytelling is a small salute to them. That was, the, that was the idea for Secret Wars. I actually started writing it, uh, the original book, back in the 90s. And uh, I was sending it out, actually sending out the week of 9-11 when I was done with it. And, and that was before internet. So you had books and cover letters and stacks of envelopes and off to the agency it goes. And then 9-11 happened. My book is about terrorism, 1986 terror in Gaddafi. I'm like, can you, huh? Here's I am. This is like marketing 101. Right. So I pulled out the cover letter, changed it, saying, if not now, when? And they, and they said, no, no one wants to read about terrorism. Everybody was spooked, which absolutely was wrong because then all the action writers took off. Have you heard of Jason Bourne? Because that Jason, all, those, all those things came along, and I, and I just sat on doing my job and sitting on my book, and I decided to self-publish. But, um, but, but those people back in 1990s are here today. Yeah. You know, I mean, so Go ahead. I'm forever. I'm a talker. You know that. No, no. I was gonna. I think I'm going in the same direction you were headed. The um, two things. Number one, I find it ironic that you're writing about spy devils, and you've at least once in your your time, you came and did it for me when I was uh, chapter chair up here in Wisconsin. You, you talk about ethics, and there's obviously yeah. certain boundaries you don't cross. You can get right up up to the edge, and fine to get right there, but you don't go over the edge, or you're in big trouble. I think that that's for, for the corporate intelligence people listening to this podcast. I think that finding your edge, finding what is that edge that you're able to go to without compromising your integrity, integrity or ethics or morals or otherwise legalities, you know, that's an important thing. And you got to make sure it aligns to the culture 
of the organization with which you work. Right. You do it, um, you know, in spy devils. And I'm looking forward to finishing this, but the, um, the movie Argos that came Argo. out, Argo, yeah. that came out many years ago. Is it right, Joe, that, uh, you know, that's a, obviously based on a real life scenario, yeah. right? Uh, Iran hostage crisis, as I remember. Yeah, that's exactly, that's true. The movie is, 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 is a movie, but the actual storyline is, is true. Totally yeah. So when you went to the agency years ago, was it your, you had a background in, you know, from Iowa, obviously, was, was it that that got you picked up as at the agency and, and connected to some of the, you know, sort of next level things, uh, such as what went down in Argo that, that made you interesting mm-hmm. to them? Yeah, um, well, I wasn't attached to the Argo. Nobody knew about the Argo story. Um, I was picked up because I had a degree in communications, a master's degree in broadcasting and film. And I know, once again, everything's connected. And in 19, wherever I went in, 1980, uh, when I go in, 1985, videotape, uh, visual intelligence was non-existent. CNN was just on the air for a few years, still trying to figure it out. And uh, so I had this unique sort of background in using visual media. And that's how I got brought in as a, a visual librarian. And then I got moved into operations because I got this crazy, wacky ability to see things and figure things out. But uh, that was cutting edge. Plus, we had a president, Reagan, who liked video and liked to watch things. So that was that was the beginning. I, I in, read Secret Wars. Okay, the, the, that is just straight out of what it's almost autobiographic. But you know the zealousy for for visual media use of visual intelligence was my game. And yeah, people kind of use it videos. But if you're going to watch apartheid go down or or a, a revolution, it's on TV. They take over the TV stations, not the libraries when there's a revolution or there's an event. And that is connected to social media of today, mm-hmm. all right? It's, it's, it's the different version of how you get a story. The difference would be, back in those days, people didn't want this, the, the CNN effect. Oh, we can't be on the CNN because they'll show how bad we are. Don't show Tenement Square. We're gonna come into the apartment and try to shut you down at gunpoint. And CNN says, no way. It was the CNN, it, it, it tampered down people's um, actions because they didn't want to be exposed. Well, now it's get me on TV. Come on in. Show me. I want, I want the exposure. Now we have, and we have social media, which is immediate exposure. It's just totally flipped. And that, but once again, that is connected. And that skill set, I was asked this in another podcast about the, this, the skills and the thoughts of, of what we did in the early, early days, the 80s of using different media intelligence collection sources and use them to, to um, inform our decision makers and, and also use it as a, a tool is directly related to what's happening now in new technologies. Hmm. And they, they actually, the, the podcast guy said, you know, you're, you're like a pioneer in them. I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, I was my little guy. I was a nobody, but this thing was happening just organically. And you either figured it out and did it or you didn't. And, and now it's up to the intelligence people today, your peers, I'm out of the game, but who are figuring out what's the best way to do intelligence and, and communicate it and collect it and all that sort of stuff that we're supposed to do around this old, the old cycle to our decision makers. And again, no clue what that is. You guys may have, you're visionaries, you're futurists, pay attention futurists, but we, what do we know? What do who would have thought that YouTube was an, such an intelligence source? I was sitting there and someone was, we were in a staff meeting and someone, you ever heard of YouTube? What is this? Who wants to watch a video of you blowing out your birthday candles? <laughs> somebody said. Right? I, I, the reason I have Facebook on my phone is because this uh, Motorola corporate exec came into my office, put his feet up on my desk, said, tell me about this Facebook thing. Is it possible to be on a mobile phone? What's Facebook? I'm like, I don't know what Facebook is. So I, figured, I, so I downloaded Facebook. I didn't, that was the beginning. Now it's, and that's just that long. That's 16 years ago. Right. 16 years ago and less. So we don't, we don't know what it is, but what's the next YouTube? I mean, TikTok is an intelligence source. Who would have, 
Who would have thought that? And for good and for bad, or whoever's using it, whether it be Chinese or us or whoever, or it's a propaganda source, or it's a misinformation source, or disinformation, which is much more dangerous, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, than the actual tools that are being used. But I, I put it to the people who are in the fog. I'm, on, I'm in a different fog. I was in the fog back then too, but the people who are doing intelligence today or related fields about the ethical issues, what the ethical issues regarding social media and collecting intelligence and privacy and how far you go are immense. I mean, they aren't to be discarded. In every one of my classes, I have an ethics week, all right, when it comes down to mass communications. You want to be a journalist, you want to write something, here's what you need to be thinking about because you can end up in trouble. Yep. And so I haven't forsaken, I just taken it to a different audience because it is the quick, because ethics are you, right? And if, and if you're doing it, how are you going to use these tools? How are you going to communicate these tools properly or what mistakes we think about making either intentionally or not? It's That's wild. good. As well. And those standards change as you outlined. And I think, you know, one of the, when we were getting ready to go live here, um, I, sh I shared two books, two of both of which you wrote, uh, Joe, and I shared yeah. a third book uh, called Unrestricted Warfare uh, by Colonels Liang and Jiang Sui. Uh, so this was written the year after we met, 1999, and it was written by two generals in the People's Republic of China in the uh, People's Liberation Army. And the whole idea was they were describing how to conduct an asymmetric conflict uh, with a, as a developing nation, with a high-tech nation like the United States. And a lot of this was influenced by Desert Storm uh, and specifically what they sort of saw in the Desert Storm, you know, uh, situation. And there's a conclusion. This was um, page 104 of the chapter, chapter six, I think new methodology of war games. And that's where I'd kind of like to end our conversation is around war gaming. Okay. Um, and here's the analogy. The winner always likes to coast on the path of victory, like the French military, which relied upon climbing out of the trenches at Verdun to win World War I and hoped that the next war would be carried out the same as the Maginot Line. The American military, which won a victory in the Gulf War, also hopes to continue the desert storm type addiction this is the, from the Chinese. Chinese, yes. Remember During the 21st century. Although each calculation won glory like that of Schwarzkopf, all of the American generals understand that it is not possible for wars in the next century to be simple replays of the Gulf War. Mm -hmm. um, so that, just to open up a can of worms, mm -hmm. uh, what types of warfare will corporations have to equip themselves for in the decade ahead. Uh, and I guess I'll make the point of, we think we're coming out of a pandemic that has largely, I'll, I'll use the word decimated. My wife and I always uh, are amused by the use of a Roman uh, metric of damage uh, and how incorrectly it's used, uh, but well, has decimated our economy. And there's a lot of scar tissue that is not going to heal. And, you know, we can look at travel and hospitality and ask ourselves how that's recalibrating in the future. But I think it's broader than that. And here's what I'll, here's my hypothesis and feel free to Let me challenge. Write, I better write it down because you use big words. Well, here's, here's the analogy. We've drawn the future. We've drawn reality out of the future. What the pandemic and its effects and particularly lockdown has caused to happen in the world economy is we've taken the trends that were already moving through time and we've pulled them forward and we've made them immediate and real right now. And that's, by the way, where the title of this podcast comes from, Running Into the Fog. That's what Derek and I did about a year ago uh, with Aurora was I called Derek and said, things are going to change and we need to recalibrate our operation in order to deal with this new reality because it's not going to go back uh, to what it was, and our clients' priorities are going to change. We've got to completely rethink what our what we're doing for our clients because the world that they enjoyed just melted, and it's and it's not coming back the way they think it's going to. So, there's my okay. hypothesis. 
let me, uh, if I'm a contrarian to your hypothesis or if I'm standing up, and I'm gonna go back to the book because this was actually a theme within the book, and you'll see it, is I think there's a back to the basics world that we're gonna, that we're gonna go back into. And it's not gonna, yes, we're gonna have, we're gonna have tools and whatever those tools are. And we're gonna have smart people because there's always smart people. And there's gonna be smarter, more nimble, nimble companies or individuals or markets than others. But I think there has been, at least in how I wrote this book, what I thought was a sort of maybe my feeling of the future is maybe we, there's a, a pullback to non, that's, from a book it was, they're off the grid, right? They're, they're not using digital. They're not doing all this stuff. They're not gonna let the Chinese hack them. They're not gonna let people steal them. They're carrying things by hand. They're doing all this stuff because that worked and it was yeah. secure. And all this stuff came along to attack the capabilities of today. And now the new capabilities of today, which is we're zooming and who knows if we could go back to work or, or community, whatever, that's, that's a structural change. But the actual idea of how we interact Collect, collect information or transmit our thoughts. I, I was going back to, you know what, sometimes things, writing things down on paper are better than putting them in computer because your computer crashes. Mine got caught in a fire. I lost a book in 2017. I lost my entire thing because I had a fire. And so I, I, I know if I'm being contrarian or if I'm, I don't, I'm not going to say, I, I'm not going to go with everything to become so advanced. Let's get advanced because things advance. Right. We always have. We're not riding horses, all right? We're advancing. Bicycles came around because there was a horse uh, famine or Europe or horse disease in Europe, right? They didn't have, they had to get still moving. There's horses were dying. So things had, creativity came along. I still think, I would hypothesize or put up for conjecture here that it might be best to simplify and to go back to, maybe not even back, but to see how we did things previously and say, we can still use those techniques in the new world and not be exposed to someone putting out one tweet and saying our corporation is, is not backing this or is backing that because there's a hashtag that's gone viral and we're in trouble. You know, oh, good old school marketing, all right, still works, yep. right? Good old fashioned press conferences and talking and those things, they still work and not relying upon the hashtag viral world to bring you down to your personnel, whatever. So, there's going to be a sense, I think, of simplicity mm. in some of the things that we do. Or if it's a new thing, make it as simple as possible. It doesn't have to be complex. There's enough complexity. Uh, who, who saw a pandemic? I think that put a brakes on a few things. And people go, you know what? I, can, I don't have to go out to dinner every day. I can have people deliver it to me. It's just, more, it's just simple. I don't need to get in the car. All right? I don't want to put gas in my car. My car was getting, you know, a month to a gallon, you know, for a while. It was, it was, but, you know, they say, yeah, I can, this isn't bad. So I don't know if I'm making myself think, but I think there's going to be a, a, I hope or think, or maybe say there's going to be a move towards making the, the com complex simple to get things done. Right. Maybe I, I don't know if I'm making sense. No, I think that's actually, uh, orthogonal is a word I've been using a lot lately. Uh, isn't that a geometry thing? Yeah, in Euclidean geometry, two lines are orthogonal when their uh, index reference is zero. So in other words, they're at right angles. Uh, it's one of the, they're yeah. intersections. And I think your point is intersecting mine. I think the simplicity aspect, um, there's a word I've been using a lot lately, which is subpatriate. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, there's a lot of stuff that I used to do out in the open that I'm being a little more private about. And I'm getting it below the surface, so to speak, um, because I don't know that I want everybody observing all that stuff. And even though I've got an Instagram account, boy, I, I really thought hard about posting the kids Easter egg hunt from Saturday on my Instagram account and having it show up all sorts mm -hmm. of places. Um, I might not, you know, I might just keep yeah. that to myself. Uh, and I think that's part of this culture that you just described, which is, well, maybe I don't want to have all of my stuff out there where it's observable and indexable and analyzable, interpretable, and then they can read all their, you know, evil intent into it. Yeah, well, there's a level of privacy that we've given up 
that we everybody had. You know, it was my house, my neighborhood. You know, you don't want nobody's dirty laundry. Oh, you know, that. But you know, here's a rumor, and, the, and now it's just it's out there all all the time. And maybe we're deciding that uh, some of these platforms that we have aren't the best places to discuss or posting. Easter egg hunts, that's up to whether you want to expose your kids to pictures. Hey, I teach social media. I do not have political discussions at yeah. all right. on social media. That, anything con- I self-censor, which is a shame. Yep. And, and, and actually, I think people should be self-censoring in this world because I think we're giving more power to the social media platforms because we don't, and they now control the dialogue, and we're, we, you've lost control of your own thoughts and who you, your identity because people can go after you and create anonymous posts or totally disagree that it's either you're with me or against me. There's no idea of consensus or, or conversation. That is that tool. Those tools are are evil in the in the discourse world of of what you're discussing. Now, for the intelligence collector, all right, put it on. You know, I want to know more about you, whoever it might be. So it's a great. It's a, it has its Tools benefits, but when it comes down to thinking, you know, maybe maybe that corporation may not do that. Now there's marketing; it's almost indispensable. It's what you got. We're digital now; it's not going to go away. But can we use it different? Do we have to give it to Zuckerberg? Do we have to give it to Dorsey? Do we have to give it to the gang because that platform exists? Certainly, Facebook, the evil empire. I mean, that's that's for grandkids' pictures, maybe. But people, these conversations. These sharing of information, these these opinions are polluting the ability for us to see clearly real topics and real, have real discussions. We all know that. So that's why I go back to my, is there a more simple way, simpler way to collect, communicate, discuss, decide, disseminate than just, you know, typing at the faster fingertips and the fastest as I Viral hashtag, right? Tomorrow in my class, I'm starting live tweeting as for journalists, right? Things happening. What What is your responsibility if you're tweeting something live? Okay, it's a lot harder to do during COVID. You said made them go out, and I got to do it a little bit more safely. But what, what's what's your responsibility? What's your ethical responsibility, Derek? If you're going to say something live, real time, if you're covering a trial, an event on the street, a rally, a protest somebody you may disagree with. How, how quickly can you damage or build up that topic? Because you can never put it back. And that's what, those, that's what the Chinese guys were seeing, right? That's, that's in the tank. Tanks are in the tank, right? It's a new, it's cyber warfare, right? It's, I think it's good old fashioned economic espionage, okay? In fact, that's a theme in Spy Devils, which was a much bigger theme in book one, um, because I wanted to show how people recruit corporate people to alert them to their danger. That's what, that was my goal. How, do, how can you possibly be recruited to be a spy for bad people or give information you shouldn't give? Here's how it works. That wasn't the original. Right. I think the, I love the simplicity side of things. The, uh, you know, keep things simple and, you know, kind of go back to the basics. I think I align uh, pretty close to that. Joe, as we wrap up here, uh, one question for you. Share, share, um, Eric, you back? Um, think you're back. Cool, the, Eric. Um, I'm back. Eric's having a little sort technical yeah. problem. He's sort of back. Um, Joe, tell people that have uh, stayed with us to, here to the end how, how they can reach you. What's the best way to find Joe Goldberg out there? Um, JoeGoldbergBooks.com is my book email. Um, I'm always, I'm always connected. Yeah. That's, and that's, I, I don't want to say save that for book stuff, but that's where it then comes through. Um, that's actually the website, joegoldbergbooks.com. But the, if you want to get a hold of me just to talk to me, uh, you can do a JEG group, J-E-G-G-R-O-U-P.com uh, is my corporation. It's Joe at JEG group. And uh, I, I, uh, I got mottos. I live my, you guys know this. I live my life through, through certain mottos. And the one that sticks with me is anything I do to help, let me know. And you guys have that sort of same motto too. Like actually, and that, and that's because not everybody 
wants to help with a, with a lip service, but I, I try to, you know? you know, we're now at the age where we're mentors. So we sought, we, we, we got on horses and rode people to our careers and now it's time to be the horse. And uh, I, I'm very, what gives me more satisfaction now like I'm doing stuff at the University of Iowa for the school is, is giving back, right? Mm -hmm. time. And so if you want to talk about anything, you can DM me on Twitter or on Facebook. I, I, I pay attention to those things because whatever. But Joe at jeggroup.com, Joe, Joe at joegoldbergbooks.com, whatever it might be, um, I'll get back to you. I may not be able to help you, but I'll get back to you. I got one last question, then I'll let you bring us home, Eric. Uh, tell our group uh, in 20 seconds or less, if you can, uh, how you met how you met and became good buddies with uh, Jimmy Buffett. I think that's um, a super cool story. I have a, I had a friend, I was going into the corporate uh, political campaign world. I was meeting with political campaign people had experienced and figured out how I was doing my job. I was having a tough time. Motorola said, Jimmy, Jimmy Buffett's music got me through that. And the guy goes, oh, Jimmy, do you want to meet him? Because I was on the bus back in the 70s, riding around the Carter days. And then I, I went to a concert, met him, gave him my card. Uh, about six months later, I got a phone call. I'm actually in Columbia saying, hey, hey, Joe, it's Jimmy. I need your help on something. And, and that's that, then on. I haven't seen him in a while, but that's that's a short story. How Mark cool. Rita, Take what us home, great, He's a great what guy. A great, uh, what a great anecdote to end on. And Joe, what a pleasure this has been. And um, I can't wait to read the book. Uh, I got it a couple days ago. And yeah. if it hadn't come on Good Friday, I probably would have read it over the weekend. But Understood. Derek, you're a couple chapters ahead of me. I'm going to try and catch up. Um, any final kind of words for our audience? I love your analogy about being the horse and that, you know, there's a whole generation of people coming into this field uh, mm -hmm. and this field has never been more important. And those people have to be drawn in for the right reasons, I think. And the right reasons are we need to make our society more stable and more peaceful and, and governable and simple, not less so. And that it, this sort of, you know, war of civilizations that we kind of find ourselves in uh, right now between uh, what is arguably a more authoritarian worldview and a more independent world worldview. Um, I'll leave it with that. I think what can intelligence people do uh, to, uh, to help the younger generation who's coming in who may not have the same values, you know, and they may, their values may be a little more fluid in the sense that, you know, absolute truth is not necessarily something that they will agree with, like our generation might have. Right. Well, I mean, trying to answer that is that is that your is that your closing comment? Do you want me to try to That's answer? That's like that? closing. Yeah, closing. good. That's a big. Whatever one. your response to that little yeah. question. Yeah. A little, my response would be, it's all about the individual. It's all about yeah. the quality of the person who's doing the job. All right. You, you, what skills, what thoughts, what actions are you going to take as your core competencies to act upon what's being asked of you. The stuff that you explained about the world around you, that's always going to spiral. But there's going to be one of you, one of you with the stuff that's inside you, and you have to decide how you're best going to do that. Listen, to pay the bills, to, be, to, to, to feel yourself being satisfied in your life, and as I say, tell the story of who you want to be to the people around you. That's what I would stick to. Awesome, Joe. Well said. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Joe. Uh, with that, I'm going to hit the stop recording. And uh, Thanks for the go, read, go read Spy Devils, JoeGoldbergBooks.com, everybody. And we'll see you next time on Running Into the Fog. Thanks again. Thanks, Joe. Thanks.